We are continuing in our study in Zechariah. Uh, Last week we intentionally said that we are going to do an introduction. We continue on with that introduction in order to give us a right understanding of the verses that we are going to be looking at, specifically verses 12, chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. So as we look at this uh, text, you may be saying to yourself, we are taking a long time in this introduction. Are we actually going to get to the verses? By the time we get to the verses here, verses 1 through 9, we are going to speed through them toward the end. So if you're thinking we've already spent a lot of time on the introduction, that is uh, the reason why. Last week we started off by talking about New Covenant theology. And we said that there seem to be two weaknesses that need to be addressed within it. One is the distinction between the law and the gospel. We said that the law, we are specifically talking, at least in our context, about the law of Christ. Anything the Bible commands or says that we should do is to us a law. It is a precept. It is something that we are commanded to do. And the gospel is the great promises of God in Christ Jesus to save his people from their sins. So there are gospel promises about what God has done in Christ for us. That's the gospel. Anytime we come across a a promise related to the great program of redemption in the scripture, we are talking about something related to the gospel. Anytime we hear something that is telling us what to do, even if it's a command like love one another, it is part of the law. And we need to clearly understand the distinction between the law and the gospel if we are going to read the Bible correctly. The second thing that we said is that there is a program that God is still working with the nation of Israel. And this seems to be a weakness within New Covenant theology. But we in this church want to make sure that we are clearly established and understand that God still cares about and loves his people, Israel. Nowhere in the New Testament is Israel called the church or the church called Israel. Anytime the Bible is talking about Israel, it's talking about the Jewish people and the Jewish people connected with their land. And so we need to understand that there is a plan of God for the people of Israel and for their land, the land that we said, in the Middle East. In fact, I cannot understand the flow of the scripture without a clear understanding of the plan of God for Israel. This has become hammered home as we read the Old Testament scriptures. Over and over and over again, In the Bible, it is clear God is still not done with this nation. He's not done with them as a people. He's not done with them in their land. And part of the problem that we see in the church today is there has been a neglect of the Old Testament scriptures. And so as we read the Bible, if we read the New Testament, we are New Covenant Christians. That's where our emphasis needs to be. But if we don't read the Old Testament, if we're not in the Minor Prophets, It's easy for us to say, well, God might still love the Jews and that kind of thing, but not really understand the promises, even the gospel promises that he has made 
for his people, the people of Israel. And I cannot understand the scriptures rightly. If I'm going through the Old Testament, I see promise after promise to the uh, people of Israel, and all of a sudden get to the New Testament, and it's like I jump off a cliff, as it were, and I say all these promises simply apply to the church. It's like Israel is just completely removed from the whole program, the whole plan. It's just like God is done with Israel, and now he has simply moved on to the church. I cannot understand the flow of Scripture if the Bible is being read that way. There is only one Savior for Jew and Gentile, and there is only one way to heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah. He is the Savior of all who will believe, all who will repent of their sins and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether they are a Jew or a Gentile, will be saved. And nobody is saved because of their skin. The Jew is not going to be saved just because someday they stand before God and they say, I'm an ethnic Jew, and God says, well, I've made some promises to you, therefore I'm going to let you into heaven. No, no. Only those who have put their faith in the Messiah, whether it was in the Old Testament, the coming Messiah, whether it was in the New Testament times looking directly at the Messiah, or whether it's us who look back to the Messiah and look upon the work that he has done. So in order to have a a right understanding of the Bible, we need to read the Bible in context, in the context not just of the New Testament, but of both Testaments, the Old and the New Testament, reading through the entire thing. Let me just say this by way of passing as we go through this. It is so important to read the Bible. Sunday Sunday morning is not enough. It's not good enough to just come and hear 45 minutes of a sermon and our hearts are, are set ablaze, hopefully, for a small amount of time. And it's not good enough to just say it's important to read the Bible. It's important to actually read the Bible. For each one of us to have some kind of plan, Maybe it's just a plan in our own mind. We say we want to read through this book or this testament or this series of books, and we begin to read through that word for word. There's nothing more important other than spending time in prayer, than spending time in God's word and really thinking about what is the text saying. I was watching Billy Graham's funeral this past week. And one of the daughters of Billy Graham said that their mother, Ruth Graham, would read the Bible every day with the children as they grew up. And she said she learned from her the importance of reading the Bible, just reading the Bible, the importance of being in the Word of God. And she said when Daddy was home, he would also read the Bible and devotions would become his thing. But instead of just reading through the text, he would stop after verses or a verse and comment And she said she learned from that the importance of thinking about what was being read and the importance of reading it and reading it with understanding. The Bible being read in our lives is so important. In regard to this whole 
idea of God still having a plan for Israel, Walter Kaiser says this. He says, there is one people, the people of God. So he says, there's one people, the people of God, with a number of discernible aspects. So within this unity, there is diversity. Within the one people of God, there are discernible uh, aspects within that one people of God. He says this, such as Israel and the church. And he says, and there is only one program of God, and that is the kingdom of God, with numerous aspects under that single program. So there's one people with diverse aspects, and there's one program, and that is the kingdom of God. So there is a unity within the kingdom of God, and yet there is a diversity. The scripture shows us this. If you go over to Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. The Bible talks about the importance of this unity that we have in Christ. Any person who has come to the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a beautiful harmony. And Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now he's saying here there's a beautiful unity here, but there is a diversity. And we can't miss that. Does this Is Paul saying there are no longer Jews? No. Is he saying that there are no longer Greeks? No. Is he saying there are no longer slaves or free people? No, he's not saying that. Is he saying there's no longer male? There's no more males in the kingdom of God? We're just all unisex? No, he's not saying that. He's saying there's no females. Now, we'd have a, an issue with that in our day and age. It seems like there's great confusion over this with people trying to even figure out who they are. And uh, we are getting more nutty as the, as the days go by in our culture. It, it, is, it is sad. And you have kids that are born biologically as boys going, you know what, I think uh, parents are encouraging them. Some parents are saying, well, uh, maybe you should really think about what you want to be. Do I want to be a boy? Maybe I don't want to be a boy. Maybe I want to be a girl. You want to talk about mass confusion. Mass confusion in our society. And uh, this has been going on for some time, but it's only getting worse and worse. And by the way, the more you stand with the Scripture, the more odd you're going to look like in this society. The more persecuted you are going to be, the more narrow-minded you are going to be seen. The world's ethics, the world's norms, that's where we get even the word morality from, is this, the norm of society, are not the norms of the scripture. And so we have, we have churches that are confused on these issues. We're getting further and further away from the plain teaching of scripture. Paul here very clearly is not saying that there's no males and no females. He's talking about this beautiful unity that we have in Christ. In fact, that's what he says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I remember, remember talking to a professor many years ago, over 20 years ago, about this matter of whether a woman should be an elder within a church, a pastor. This is the verse that he turned to in support of it. He said, you know, Jacob, and I remember he shut his eyes and he kind of looked up and he said, Jacob, there's neither male nor female. 
and he was using this verse uh, to make the case that there should be women elders. And I remember going away from that. Of course, that is not what I believe. That's not what the Bible teaches. But going away from that, thinking to myself, how, how could he use a verse that is so clearly not talking about that? At that point, we get away from, again, even biological realities, if that is the point that we are going to make. But there is this program, and it is the program with the people of God. The program is the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God still has a plan for ethnic Israel. In my studies, I found it interesting, as we talk about this whole idea of the new covenant, oftentimes when we talk about the new covenant, we just think about it in terms of, yes, we're under the, the new covenant, and uh, it's a church thing. The Old Testament was, was primarily geared for the people of Israel, and we talk about the Old Covenant with Moses, and now we are under the New Covenant, and the New Covenant specifically just deals with the church. And so here we are. We're just New Covenant Christians. But it's interesting who the New Covenant promises were made to. We're not just talking about the Old Covenant here. We're the promise that was made to Moses. And we're not talking about the covenant that was made with Abraham, a completely different covenant that was made with Abraham. But the question we need to ask ourselves is, who was the new covenant made with? If there was some kind of agreement, even if the agreement was as it was with Abraham, just one worker, a monergistic covenant, it was still with somebody. It was still with Abraham. The question is, who was the new covenant cut with? Who was it made with? Who was it ratified with? If there was an agreement between God and man, the question needs to be asked, who were the new covenant promises at least initially made to be cut with? The scripture answers this so clearly. And you would think that the new covenant was simply cut with or made with this this nebulous people, this, this people, maybe Gentile people, the, the people that simply make up the church. But we go back to Jeremiah chapter 31, and we find exactly who the new covenant is made with. In fact, once you flip with me in your Bibles, Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. We're new covenant Christians. And so the New Covenant was promised in the Old Testament. But who was the New Covenant promised to be made with? That is the question that we are asking ourselves. Who was the New Covenant made with? Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 31, it says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant, so this is the new covenant that was established under Jesus. Jeremiah is prophesying about this. He's saying in the future there's going to be a new covenant. The old covenant was under Moses, but the prophet is saying that in the New Testament, as we understand it, there's going to be a new covenant made. But he doesn't just say it's, it's made with Gentile nations. That's not what he says here. It's very interesting what he says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
In other words, who is the new covenant going to be made with? Not only was the old covenant established with Israel, but the new covenant is also going to be established with Israel and with the house of Judah. This is so vitally important. He says this in verse 32. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, that's the Mosaic covenant. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant, here it is again, that I will make with the house of Israel. Who is, who is he going to make this new covenant with? I am going to make it with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. He says this very clearly. The new covenant is going to be established with Israel. And we don't get to the New Testament and all of a sudden say we're Israel. No, he's actually talking about ethnic Israel. He's talking about ethnic Judah. And he's saying not only the old covenant, but he's very clearly saying that the new covenant, the new covenant you and I are under, would be established with his people, Israel. This is vital. It's interesting when Jesus came, what he said. When Jesus came, he didn't go from this nation to that nation, preaching the gospel to all the different nations of the world. No, no. In fact, the scripture is clear that he came primarily and firstly to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Look with me at Matthew chapter 10, where it says this, Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, verse 5. Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 says this. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So we read in the Old Testament that the new covenant would be cut with Israel, and then when Jesus comes, the one who establishes this new covenant, what does he say? He says, I've come, and in fact, he sends out his disciples, he sends out his apostles, his sent ones. He sends them first to preach to the house of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the Jews. Look with me at chapter 15, verse 24, Matthew chapter 15, verse 24. He answered, Jesus answered, and he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then when he finally establishes this new covenant, this covenant that was promised in Jeremiah, he does it with a group of Jewish men. He does it with exactly what the Old Testament promised. He says that he will establish the New Testament with Israel. He will establish it with Judah. Then Jesus comes as a Jew. He comes to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
And when he's ready to establish this new covenant, he doesn't get a group of Gentile men and women. He doesn't say, I need a few from this country and a few people from this country to establish this thing. I'm going to get a few from the south and the north. No, no. He simply takes representatives from Israel and from the house of Judah. And he's sitting around with his followers who would be leaders of the church. And he establishes this New Testament with Jewish men, the house of Israel, the house of Judah, just as it had been promised in the Old Testament. Luke chapter 22, if you flip over there, Luke chapter 22, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke chapter 22, verse 20, Jesus is having this last supper with his disciples, with the 12, and he says this in verse 20 of Luke chapter 22, verse 20, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What is he doing? He's ratifying. He's cutting this new covenant. Who's he cutting it with? He's cutting it with Israel, representatives from Israel. This cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table. Of course, we know that is Judas. And then Paul refers to this new covenant that was established first with Israel. If you go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we saw this this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. Paul is remembering back to what Christ had done, and he said this in the same way. Also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In other words, what is, uh, what is the Bible teaching? You and I as Gentiles, if you're a Gentile here, a Gentile is a, a non-Jew. You and I have been grafted into Israel. You and I have been grafted into believing Israel. That's the teaching of the scripture. There's this plan that we see from the Old Testament that flows into the New Testament. The Bible says that the New Testament is going to be established with the house of Israel, the people of Israel. That's exactly what happened. And yet you and I are included too, but we come in later. So this new covenant is established with Israel. And you and I have been grafted in. The danger here is arrogance. The danger is we have tended to flip this whole thing around. God's done with the Jews and now it's just all about us. In fact, Paul warns us of this. And this is why it's so important to read all of Scripture in its context. Because if we just chop and dice, we, we miss out on the plan. And I, I dare say we even miss out on the history of the world, the right history of the world, and what Christ is going to do in the future. What a joy, as we said last week, what a joy it is that here the Lord calls 
his people Israel, and there's a remnant of Jews who believe, and they were given the promises, the word of God. They were given the prophets. They were given all these different blessings. And some of them saw it clearly like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great prophet and the great patriarch Abraham saw it so clearly. He saw exactly what was going on. You have all these wonderful believers like David, a Jewish man. The Bible says with all of his blunders and all of his sins, here he is one day walking around and he looks down and he sees Bathsheba bathing and he takes her and commits adultery with her. And yet the Bible says that here is this man, he's a man after God's own heart. And then he says to Israel, I'm not done with you and someday I'm going to establish a new covenant and I'm first going to cut it with you. But I'm not only going to deal with you, then I'm going to graft in all of these other peoples from every tribe and every nation of the world. What a joy it is to have been called by the Lord Jesus Christ to be part of this wonderful, majestic plan that encompasses all of history. And Paul tells us very clearly, he says, be careful, Don't, don't get arrogant. He says, don't think that you were the root, church. You're not the root. He says, the Jews were the root. You have been grafted in. This is exactly what he says in Romans chapter 11. If you go over there to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, verse 17. We'll start there. Romans 11. Verse 17. Says this, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, that is the tree of Israel, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Look at verse 24. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Talking here about the importance of Israel. He says, look, they're the original." You guys as non-Jews, you were, you were grafted in. Yes, you were grafted in through Christ. These promises extend to you. But don't become arrogant. And when we go and we witness to Jews, we don't tell them because this would be highly unappealing. Listen, God's done pretty much with you. There's some promises in Christ you can be saved, but he has no more plan for you, no more land, all that stuff away with. If I was a Jew, I'd be looking at the scriptures going, Well, you're saying all these other prophecies were literal. Why isn't the fulfillment of all of these other prophecies about the land and the people of Israel also literal? But when we walk up to a Jew, and there are many Jews in this area, and uh, and it's my heart that we somehow reach them for Christ. But if we go up and we say to them, listen, Isaiah chapter 53, Jesus Christ so clearly proclaimed here is your Messiah. Psalm chapter 22, he was was pierced. It's quite clear here that this is 
your Messiah. And guess what? He's not done with you yet. He's not done with you as a people. He's not done with your land. In fact, there are many prophecies. He's going to regather you. And we thank God for you. We pray for your success and we pray for your blessing. In fact, in the Psalms, it tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So we as believers pray, oh God, would you be with Israel? Would you be with your people? Lord, we're, we're thankful that we're not the root. We were simply grafted in. We are grafted in together with Christ. Yes, we are one people united, but there is, there is diversity here. And Lord, we thank you for that. We ask you that you would, you would be with them. The reason we say all of that is because in our text in Zechariah chapter 12, it presupposes that ethnic Israel is going to be regathered in their land when this happens. When verses 1 through 9 happen, according to the context, according to the text of Scripture here, it presupposes that Israel is already back in its land as a people and that God is going to protect his people and that he is going to protect, in particular, the land of Israel. I find it very interesting that uh, J.C. Ryle was a great bishop in England in the 1800s. This is before Israel became a nation again in 1948. But this is what he said about Israel. And by the way, there are similar thoughts about the nation of Israel, not just from Ryle, but similar thoughts from Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, and Charles Spurgeon. We're all on the same page when it came to this teaching about God still having a plan, not just to convert some Jews in the future, but that he has a plan for ethnic Israel in their land in the future. And I dare say some of these promises we are even starting to see fulfilled in our day. But listen to what J.C. Ryle says. He said this in 1879. So this is, this is going back a ways. He's talking about what he's seeing in Scripture. And this is why as we... Read scripture, this new covenant, is, it's cut with Israel. There's still a plan. It's all right here. Here's what he says. He says, I might show you by scriptural evidence that the Jews will probably be first gathered in an unconverted state. How did he know that? How did J.C. Ryle in the 1800s know that Israel was going to be probably gathered to their land as a people in an unconverted state. Here's how he knew it. He read the Bible. He said, so gathered together in an unconverted state, though humbled, and will afterwards be taught to look to him whom they have pierced. So J.C. Ryle says, I believe, according to what I'm reading in Scripture, that Israel is going to be regathered back to their land. That's part of being Israel. And he said, I believe that they're going to be gathered back in an unconverted state. And afterwards, the Savior will come. And they will look upon him whom they have pierced. And they will all of a sudden recognize in mass, even though many Jews over the centuries have also seen the Messiah. It's a small, it's a relatively small number compared to the whole nation. They will look on him whom they have pierced and they will say, you are the Messiah. And it's not only for them. Listen, this is, this is, 
This is what happens to, to any of us. When we've heard the gospel preached, we've heard it taught. Somebody comes and says, Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, and you must repent of your sins, and you must believe. He's not only the Jews' Savior, but he's the Savior of the Gentiles as well, and we have been, we have been grafted in. And oftentimes people hear that, and they hear it in a hardened state. Not only the Jews in large numbers, but Gentiles in large numbers. And they hear it, and they hear it, and they hear it, and they hear it, and there's no softening. And all of a sudden, at one point, happened in your life if you're a Christian. All of a sudden, at one point, you can hear, you can, listen, you can even, you can memorize scriptures. You, you can even talk about God still having a plan for Israel. You can talk about the Trinity, and you can talk about Jesus being your Savior, and you can talk about all these things. But until your eyes have been opened to the beauty of who Christ is, and until there comes a point in your life where you say, my goodness, Jesus Christ really is who he says he is. He's, he's my Savior. Tozer said we're, we're not saved by the offices of Christ, just recognizing that he's the Savior, he's the King, he's the Sanctifier, etc., Healer. But we're saved by coming to the person, the person of Jesus Christ, and we say, Lord, I recognize who you are. I really get it now. And our hearts are opened, and listen, we repent before the Lord. We say, Lord, I'm so sorry for my sins. Lord, I recognize you're the Lord and you're the Savior. And we, we kneel before him in our hearts and we say, Lord, you can have my whole life. My whole life. Take me wherever you want. Do with my life whatever you want. It's exactly what J.C. Ryle is talking here about with the Jews. That in Mass, all of a sudden, they're going to realize in large numbers, he really was who he said he was. So this text in chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, presupposes that the Jews are back in their land. Because none of this can happen until they are. How could it? And that's why it is so vital and encouraging to look and say, wow, they came back after thousands of years. They came back in this regathered state in the 19, late 1940s. Something must be going on here. Now, notice what it says here in verse 1. We're going to go through this very quickly. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord here thwarts the plans of the nations for Jerusalem. Verses 1 through 4. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. So God is saying, I'm God. I just want you to know before we get into this, this promise of what I'm going to do to protect Jerusalem, I want you to know I'm God. I'm not just God of a small people, but I'm God of the whole world. I created everything. I created every star. I created the moon. I created everything. I'm not a God that has been made by hands. I am the God who made hands. I'm God. Can I just say one thing as we pass through this? It's a great way to pray. It's the way the early church prayed. When they would pray, they'd say, Lord, before we get to any request, Lord, we recognize that you're the maker of everything. Lord, there's nothing that you cannot do. Lord, you're all-powerful. You're omnipotent. You created everything in this universe. 
and then they would go into their prayers. That's what's going on here. Verse 2. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem, that's real Jerusalem, a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. So he is prophesying that there is coming a time, and we're even quite possibly beginning to see that even now. The nations of the world are coming against Jerusalem. Isn't it interesting, every time you turn on the news, how much the Jews are hated? There's a reason for that. There's a reason why nation after nation, there seems to always be a problem with supporting Israel. Why is that? And the Bible is saying up until this point, Jerusalem, Israel has been drinking the cup of God's wrath and judgment for their rejection, their unbelief. But he says now he's going to make Jerusalem as the nations come against Jerusalem. It's as if they were drinking wine. And they're drinking more and more into the point of where they stagger. They're unstable. So he's saying, Jerusalem has drunk the cup, but now I'm going to make the nations of the world drink the cup of God's wrath. If you flip with me to Isaiah chapter 51, we see this even a little bit. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17. Isaiah chapter 51 says this, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, for you have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Then if you go down to verse 22, Thus says the Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people, Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. He's saying, so you've drunk of this cup of God's wrath. Now they are going to drink from it. The nations of the world are going to surround you. Verse 3 of chapter 12 of, verse, of, chapter 12 of Zechariah. On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. So as the peoples come against Jerusalem, it's like trying to pick up a heavy stone. They're not going to be able to move it. In fact, they're going to cut themselves. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, verse 3. And all the nations of the world will gather against it. Can you imagine the nations of the world gathering against tiny Israel? This is going to happen and even is beginning to happen. On that day, verse 4 declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. He's going to strike the nations of the world with insanity. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Now as God begins to fight on their behalf, this is before the Lord comes back, the nations of the world gathered against Jerusalem. We are seeing this even now, the Lord is going to fight on their behalf and through the people of Israel. And as they're in this tiny nation, they're going to be looking around going, we can't believe what's happening. We can't believe we're actually winning. This is something else. God must be doing this. Can you imagine just this little tiny people in this little piece of land, the nations of the world gathered around it, but God's on their side. Notice what it says in verse 5. 
Here's their surprise of the supernatural, the supernatural fighting. Verse 5 and 6. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. They're saying, how are they fighting? Well, God must be on their side. Verse 6. On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. So they're going to be fighting the nations of the world, and they're looking around, they're fighting, they're going, we can't believe this, this is unbelievable. We're winning. How is this possible? China, Russia, God forbid America. Who knows what nations at this time? All surrounding Israel. And they're winning. And the people of Israel are recognizing this isn't just us. God must be fighting on our side. That's the, that's the only way that we are winning this thing. This is, this is the talk according to verses 5 and 6. This is what they're saying to each other. God, God's in the midst of this. In fact... It's God who gives them the decisive victory, the battle, the victory is the Lord's, verse 7. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem. When did this happen in history? It hasn't. This is why when we're reading the scripture, we say, when did this all happen? It hasn't happened. That's why we're saying it's future. And as we read it, it becomes clearer and clearer. It's still future, and it's right before the Lord's second return. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God. That's a profound and powerful statement. How are they fighting? They're fighting like God like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Who is fighting their battles through them and for them? It's none other than the Lord of hosts. One more text of scripture and we close. Second Chronicles chapter 20. Second Chronicles chapter 20. Verse... 15. The Lord's talking to Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, King Jehoshaphat. Then it says this in verse 15 of Second Chronicles chapter 20. Thus says to you, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at this great horde. For the battle is not yours, but God's. So, chapter 11, talking about the first coming. Chapter 12 that we're in, and we'll finish up next week, is talking about events that are surrounding the second coming. Before Christ comes back, it presupposes that the people of Israel are going to be in their land and that the nations of the world will be gathered against it and that they begin to fight. 
But instead of the nations of the world winning, little Israel, little Judah, all of Israel, and specifically that jewel, Jerusalem, is saved because the battle is the Lord's. And maybe that's something we could be praying this week in our own lives. You say, well, this is specifically um, about Israel. And we believe that. God's still got a plan, as we said, even the new covenant was cut with the people of Israel. That's what the text of Scripture says. But two things. Maybe this week we pray. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And maybe we even need to ask ourselves, Lord, I came to the Jews first. You love Gentiles. That's why we're here. You love us a lot. But Lord, how, how can we speak life into people that are Jews? You still love them. You still have a plan for them. How, how can we even as a church, maybe we just need to begin to pray about that. What are some things that we as a church can do to reach out to the Jewish community in our area? And what does it mean to, if we're going to preach to them and they take the law of the Old Testament Many of them, not all of them, very seriously. How are we going to live lives in front of them so that the name of God is not profaned or dishonored? It's a big thing when you're going to them and you're talking about the holiness of God. I would imagine that they would want to see that we are serious people of the book. And maybe the second thing that we can be praying this week is, Lord, Situations that we're in, and the odds seem overwhelming. Just simply go to the Lord and say, Lord, the battle is yours. The nations of the world might be surrounding, metaphorically speaking. The nations of the world might be surrounding. But Lord, my hope, my trust is in you. Remembering that text of scripture, it's the Lord who fights the battles. It's the Lord who wins the battles. It's the sovereignty of God. Just coming back to that, saying, Lord, I trust you. Would you stand with me as we, we close? Father, we pray for these couple things. Lord, we do pray for your people, Israel. We thank you, God. The text of scripture is clear. Lord, sometimes in the church we've gotten this whole thing flipped around. It's almost like the Jews become part of our program. Lord, forgive us, as Paul warned us so specifically, forgive us for our arrogance. And we recognize that Israel will not be saved without the Messiah. So Lord, we ask you today for your people, Israel, that they would turn and see Jesus Christ is all that he said he is. He's their Messiah. He's our Messiah. Lord, I, I would ask you for uh, this, this matter of praying for overwhelming odds, God. We pray that we would turn to you and we would see you fight our battles for us, the strong arm of the Lord on our behalf. And that we'd even be like these people in Jerusalem and in Judea, Judah, just looking at each other saying, this must be God. How is this even possible that we're winning? This is, this is supernatural. We don't have the power in our own strength. Every head bowed and every eye closed, maybe you've come in today and you just are saying, you know what, I, I feel like Israel. I feel like that little nation 
and I'm just dealing with some overwhelming odds in my life, and I'd like to give those things over to the Lord. Would you raise your hand? You say, that's me. Anyone else? Anyone else? That's me. I'm just dealing with some overwhelming odds. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we just lift up each one to you. And in our weakness, God, you're strong. We just come, we admit we're weak. We admit our weakness before you. We thank you, Lord, for your strength and your power. We pray that you would fight our battles for us. And Lord, that we would begin to be able to say to one another, look at what God is doing. This is unbelievable. It must be God. Thank you, Lord.